book of Acts, chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, we're still examining the story of Ananias in Damascus as he received the call from Jesus to go and visit Saul, blinded Saul, sitting in the house of Judas on the street named Straight in Damascus. We'll begin reading in uh, verse 10 of Acts chapter 9. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, about how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he has to suffer for the sake of my name. So today we're going to lock in on the phrase found uh, in verse 15. Go, for he is my chosen instrument. And what we're really going to be talking about today is God's sovereignty over biography. So what I'm going to do today is give you a brief sketch of Saul's life that I gathered up just by examining the scriptures, the various scriptures that give us hints into Saul's life and the circumstances of his upbringing and so forth. And I want you to be able to see, as Saul slash Paul saw, that God was in it all. Uh, in, In Galatians chapter 1, in verse 15, Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So we're going to talk about God's sovereignty over biography. And in doing that, I want you to be able to see some of the finer details of Saul's life. And I think that might be helpful to you as we progress through Acts very slowly. I understand. As we progress through Acts, Paul emerges as the central figure in the book of Acts, the central uh, non-God figure anyway. And uh, and Paul emerges, so I want you to kind of know, well, I I think I know Paul a little better than I did before this sermon. But most importantly, I want you to know God better. And I want you to be reminded this morning of God's sovereignty over all the circumstances that brought you to this point, just as we will see God's sovereignty over all the circumstances that brought Saul to this moment in this home, blinded in Damascus. I want you to be able to appreciate that God is at work in your life in the same way that he was at work in Saul's life. I can say without absolute certainty, without knowing anything about your salvation or your current uh, relationship with God, I can say with absolute certainty that everybody in this room is an instrument that God has prepared to proclaim his glory for all of eternity. And so thinking about instrumentality today, 
this idea that everything is an instrument in some respects. I want you to think about that. And I also want to talk for a moment about God's sovereignty over suffering by examining at the end of this message what uh, Saul says, what, what God says to Ananias in verse 17, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So that's sort of what we're going to do today, and, and I want to begin by thinking carefully about the idea of instrumentality when, God, when, when Jesus says to Ananias, go, for he is my chosen instrument. I want us to think about, well, what, is that, what does it mean to be an instrument of God? Okay, so, so there's a couple different ways that I want you to think about this, and the first one has to do with one of the best drummers in the history of rock and roll, a guy named Neil Peart, who was the drummer for the band Rush. Okay, so I think I have a photo here. Can we look at the photo? Yeah, there we go. Okay, so, so Neil, Neil has about 80 things to hit any time he's playing the drums, okay? So he has got one of the largest uh, drum kits in rock and roll, and he, you can watch videos, go on YouTube and look at his drum solo from the song Tom Sawyer. Uh, anyway, uh, you, can, you can watch him play, and he'll actually get to most of these instruments. These are not superfluous. They're not just for show. He'll actually get to each one of these multitude of drums throughout a, any given concert, not necessarily every song, but throughout any given concert. And I, I, I want that image to stay up for a minute because I want you to, let's, let's, let's anthropomorphize God a moment and say that God has created a world full of instruments that he plays to bring glory to himself. And everything, everything in existence is an instrument in his drum kit. So every atom, right? Every leaf on every tree, every drop of water, everything, every particular epigenetic switch that you're carrying around right now, everything is an instrument. And God is this master musician who not only created all of his own instruments, but plays them expertly at any given time so that when we see in Colossians that all things were made by him, through him, and for him, this is the idea. God is, everything is God's instrument. He's the the master musician, and he's playing all of reality at every given second in a way that announces his glory, namely to himself and then to the rest of creation. This is a pretty cool idea. When we think about instrumentality, we've got to remember everything's an instrument. God, God uses everything as an instrument. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. But, but now I want to I shift a little bit. We're still thinking about instrumentality. And I want to say that when it comes to you, you are way more complicated than a drum. So I started looking for a metaphor of like, well, what can we talk about that would help you to understand like God's preparing you as an instrument? Because you're not like a drum. You're something, maybe to God you're a drum. But to, to, in our view... You're way more complicated than a drum. So I want to talk about this, this, this discovery that was made in 1900 by divers in the Aegean Sea, and they found this instrument that's, that's called the Antikythera mechanism. And, I th- yeah. and uh, this is a, a, an Apple engineer recreated this instrument out of Legos. And so you can see uh, the dozens and dozens of gears. And, and for, 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 for a long time, when this instrument was discovered, no one had any idea what it was. It had been laying at the bottom of the sea since maybe 100 B.C. And no one really knew what, what it did. And we had to get to the point where we were able to do detailed scanning. So, so when, we, when we got the capacity to do detailed scanning, they took this thing that was kind of, you know, 
rusted and patinaed over from all those years at the bottom of the sea, and they scanned it, and what they found was that it was, it was a computer. It was a mechanized computer. And that each one of these gears, 100 BC, was precisely cut to interact with all of the other gears so that it would tell both the time and also predict the lunar cycle and I think also eclipses and whatnot. So that 100 BC, somebody, some genius, was carving out by hand gears in this machinery that precisely locked into one another and turned in a way to, to produce this, this pretty complicated computation. So when you think of yourself as an instrument, or when we think of Saul as an instrument, this is more like who you are. You know, each one of the details of your life is like a little tooth in one of the gears, and God has been working throughout your life sovereignly to make each one of those gears precisely intermix with another gear somewhere else. And we don't see all of the relation between all of the circumstances of our lives. We don't see the interrelation between our sufferings and our blessings and like that time when you were in fifth grade, whatever comes to mind in fifth grade. You know, we don't see the interactions of all of this, but when it means when Jesus says about Saul, he is my chosen instrument, what that means is that God has been preparing him in every tiny little gear, every circumstance, every character flaw, uh, every character virtue, he's been preparing it all to work together to tell the world what time it is, namely that it's time to worship Jesus. So this is more like who you are. This is more who like Saul is. You're you're less like a drum and and more like this. So now I want to tell you a little bit about Paul's biographical circumstances. And I just came up with a list of, of five significant issues that we would be wise to examine. So they're tribe, Tarsus, trade, teacher, transgressions. And I want to talk about each of these, and I want you to kind of try to keep that image of gears working together as we talk about Saul's life before he came to Christ, okay? So these are, this is just an outline of some of the key features or the key teeth in the cogs that God was preparing in miraculous, sovereign, providential ways. So when I talk about tribe, I, I mean to refer to the fact that as Paul says of himself, in Philippians, that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born to a particular race of people. Uh, He was a Jew. And as a Jew, Saul was in possession of what he would later describe in Romans as a great advantage, and that he had first access to the oracles of God. No matter what became of Saul's education, no matter what became of his career and so forth, just based on the fact that he was a Jew, born when he was born, he would have had much of the Torah memorized, but certainly had the Ten Commandments memorized. Saul was born into a particular tribe. And Saul was born into a particular town, which would have been better than Tarsus. But anyway, Tarsus was the name of the town. And, And this was significant. This winds up being another key in the cogs because in Acts 18, Saul, Saul describes, Paul describes uh, his, his town this way. He says, so sorry, Acts 21. He says, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. What does he mean when he says a citizen of no obscure city? Well, there were only a few centers of learning in the Roman Empire 
that, that, that were as big a deal as Tarsus. So Tarsus was, the, you know, was the Boston or, or the Stanford, the, the MIT or the Stanford of the Roman world. The Caesars would go and select tutors from this city in particular to, uh, to educate their households. So now we've got two gears in the cogs. We've got, he's born in a particular tribe, and that tribe seems discordant with his town. His tribe is Jewish, but he's living in a very, very Roman city. And, and that city is awash in Hellenistic philosophy and Plato and Aristotle and those dudes. And, and so you've got the second factor in his life, where he was born. To whom he was born is the first factor. Where he was born is the second factor. And now we look at <clears throat> trade in Acts 18. We see Paul meeting a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And it says that because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked with them, for they were tent makers by trade. So in our day and age, we separate much to our own demise academia from physical labor. But in the Jewish world, this was not so. If you were a student of any intellectual capacity, you also learned how to work with your hands. Uh, this was a tradition in the rabbinical schools. There was no sort of separation between, well, your you're, you're learning is your job. Well, no, no, it was, it, was, it was that and also you need to learn a trade. So some of what John Stott offers, I'm sorry, not John Stott, but, but G.T. Stokes offers about this particular issue is just, you're going to find this interesting. It says, but it was the law of that school, he's talking about the rabbinical school, and a very useful law it was too, that every Jew and especially every teacher should possess a trade by which he might be supported did necessity call for it. Uh, Some of the most celebrated rabbis, he continues, were masters of a mechanical art or trade. And it was a common proverb at the time among the Jews that said, he who taught not his son a trade taught him to be a thief. And so there was this other key ingredient in Saul's upbringing. He's born to a particular people, born in a particular place, and he's also been taught a particular trade. And that trade just so happens to be sort of the, uh, the first century equivalent of you guys who get to work from home. You know, it's highly portable. You know, uh, he, he could do this anywhere. And he was able, because of this trade, to sustain himself for many years. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Now let's talk about his teacher. Uh, at a certain age, those that had the most academic promise would be transferred out of sort of the schools for everybody and sent to, if you were a Jew, sent to a rabbinical school. Saul's parents sent him to Gamaliel. And we know where we can, we, can, we can imagine sort of some of the reasons for this. Gamaliel was on the left side of the rabbinical school. He was far more cosmopolitan, as I'll read you in a moment. He was far more open-minded when it came to the Gentiles. And of course, Saul had been living among the Gentiles and his parents had been living among the Gentiles, probably already captured quite a bit of Hellenistic uh, knowledge. And so they send him to, to Jerusalem 
to be a part of Gamaliel's uh, school of rabbinical studies. In Acts 22, Paul says it this way, I am a Jew. This is kind of the outline. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus, brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict matter of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. So Gamaliel was certainly not uh, a slacker when it came to the fulfillment of the law. But I want, you to, I want you to hear what I mean when I talk about him being more cosmopolitan, more open-minded. So Louis Burkhoff wrote a, a biography on Saul slash Paul that I used quite a bit in preparation for this. And this is how he talks about Gamaliel. His teacher was the greatest rabbi of his age, the celebrated Gamaliel, the grandson of Hillel, a man honored by all the people. He was a strict Jew, but not a fanatic, but liberal and open-minded. Thus is evident from his studies in Greek literature and from several humane enactments that were fathered by him. Thus he laid it down that poor heathen, the poor heathen, the poor Gentiles, the poor non-Jews, should have the same rights as the poor Jews in gleaning gatherings from the harvest. So the story of Ruth and how Ruth is on the edges of the field, Boaz's field, because according to the Old Testament law, you needed to leave the edges of your field available. You didn't harvest that part. You made it available for the poor Jews in the land to harvest. Gamaliel looked back at the story of Ruth and said, not just Jews. Anybody who's poor living in a land should be able to glean from a wealthy Jewish field on the edges. Um, he, he made it a, a practice that when the Jews would, would greet uh, a Gentile, they should extend the customary greeting on them, peace be with you. So, so you'll see later Paul speaking to all sorts of Gentiles, and he says, grace and peace be upon you, and so on and so forth. Gamaliel taught him, uh, you know, when you encounter a Gentile, extend to them the greeting of God. Uh, even on their feast days, on the pagan feast days, there was this acrimony that would develop on the pagan feast days where the Jews would be like, you're super dirty today because you're offering, uh, you're extra dirty because you're offering, uh, you know, sacrifices to idols today. Gamaliel said, no matter what day it is, always offer a greeting to these Gentiles. And, and then Burkhoff reflects on, well, what did it mean to grow up with this teacher for Saul to have this particular teacher? And he says, first of all, it gave him an intimate acquaintance with the Old Testament, that revelation of God in which all further revelation would be founded. Secondly, it introduced him to the rabbinic lore and made him familiar with the rabbinic methods of interpretation. For polemical purposes, this was a great asset. Thirdly, it made him a skilled dialectician, well qualified to present the truth of God in a clear-cut way and to support it by various kinds of arguments. And fourthly, it gave him a certain broad-mindedness it made him more or less charitable to those who were not of faith and even those who worshiped idols. So the, the final thing on the list is transgressions. And here I don't really need to give you <clears throat> any history. We've already discussed Saul's sin. But I just want to say it this way. There was a season, a significant season, decades, in Saul's life where he used all of the gifts of God, that God had bestowed upon him against God, right? That's just the, the simplest way to say this, so that when Paul later writes in Romans 1, that those who knew God but did not acknowledge him, and they worshiped and served the creation over the creator who is forever blessed, 
you know, he knows of what he speaks. There was a season in which Saul was an incredibly blessed man, but he was also an incredibly sinful man. He was, as we said several weeks ago, an incredibly successful man, and simultaneous to that success, and, and, and indeed related to that success, he was an incredibly sinful man. So this would be a massive issue for Saul for the rest of his life, that he was indeed a great sinner. He calls himself the chief of sinners, and that Christ stepped in and brought mercy upon him. So now look back at verse 15 in our text, Acts chapter 9. Jesus tells Ananias, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to do three things, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Three areas of calling. He will carry my name to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. Now go back to that list, the five things, his, his tribe, his town, his trade, his teacher, and his transgressions, and see the providential, sovereign work of God chiseling out gears in Saul's life decades before he would know Christ in order to create this machine that would tell the world that it was time to worship Jesus. Isn't that amazing? All of the providential details of his past are working together. Why? Because he is a chosen instrument. He's a chosen instrument. And because he's a chosen instrument, there's never been a time in Saul's existence in which God was not sovereignly at work in all of his circumstances to prepare him for the work that he had for him to do. So now we're just going to shift and and talk about application. Like, how does that apply to us? What, What does that mean for you and I? Well, firstly we should apply it the way that Jesus meant for Ananias to apply it. Why did did Jesus tell Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine? What was Jesus' point in saying that? Well, as we looked at last week, Jesus is responding to Ananias' fears. And so the first point of application is just simply this. We should not fear any instrument in God's hands. We should not fear any instrument in God's hands. And since everything is an instrument in God's hands, then we should not fear anything but him. Everything in life is a drum in his drum kit. It's his instrument, all of it, even the worst stuff, even the transgressions. And through his sovereign power, he is doing a work that turns all of that into an instrument which plays his song, his way, and in his time. So the first point of application is simply this. You won't encounter anything in your life that isn't an instrument in the hand of God. You'll never encounter anything, any prospect, any question, any high, any low, any person, a nice person, a mean person, a mysterious person. You'll never encounter any person who isn't an instrument in the hand of God. So the first point of application from thinking about this issue of instrumentality is just this. If God made it and it's in his hand for his purposes, I shouldn't fear it. The second point of application, I I just want to touch on the issue of God's sovereignty and the problem of evil. 
Because all of this talk about God being so intimately involved in all of the details of the world immediately provokes the question, what about all the bad stuff? Is God, is God there too? Is God involved in that? Yes, yes. God is sovereign in creation, in providence, in redemption, and judgment. And that is the central assertion of Christian belief. That is not a reformed assertion. That is a Christian assertion. If you eliminate God's sovereignty over all things, you don't have God any longer. So we are not right now preaching a particular brand of Christianity. We are preaching the God of the Bible, who is sovereign over all things. To say it another way, nothing happens without God willing it to happen and willing it to happen before it happens and willing it to happen the way it happens. This is central to the doctrine that God has given us in his word. And you say, including the really bad stuff? Well, yeah, look back at our text again. Look back at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Look at verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And here's what we could say about that verse. All suffering occurs unilaterally, categorically, universally. All suffering occurs for the sake of his name. Not a single drop of pain, of grief, of fear occurs in this world that isn't an instrument in God's hands meant to, in the end, bring glory to him. Now think back to that Antikythera machine. It, it sort of sat in a, I, I don't know, like a box somewhere on a shelf for 100 years. Why? Well, because we didn't have the technology to look inside of it. And so we weren't able to see all of the intention behind this. It was, it was clear it was important, but no one knew what it did. Only after we developed the scanning technology where we could look inside this machine and see all of the intention were we able to see how all of the gears lined up. And so it is with suffering, right? It really doesn't make sense to us a lot of the time because we don't have the vision that God has to see what needs to be seen to understand it. We can't see it all lining up, but that doesn't mean it doesn't line up. By faith, we believe that God is sovereign over all things. And so then when the next tragedy strikes one of us, we don't ask that question. That's the one question we don't have to ask. The question we have to ask is, God, when will you let me see the purpose behind this suffering? But the question we don't have to ask is, God, did you know this was going to happen? Did you, did you will for this to happen? Did this happen according to your good purpose for me and for the world and for Christ? That's the question we don't have to ask. We can immediately begin uh, thinking about suffering from a position of humility in which we say, I know you know, and I know that when you want me to, I will know as well. For many decades, you would have looked at Saul's life and said, man, this guy has been incredibly blessed. 
And then you would have seen this manifestation of all these blessings in extreme wickedness, violence, and anger. And you're saying, God, it's almost like you built a Christian bulldozer from the ground up. It's almost like you built this man to be the perfect weapon of mass destruction against the church. That's what Ananias would have thought when he heard about Saul. This guy looks like he's a finely tuned Christian killing machine. Yeah, he's finely tuned to glorify the name of Jesus. And so what we see in this verse is that all suffering, all suffering is for the sake of his name and that he's going to teach Saul that, and boy, does he ever. What is all this suffering? I just want to underline this. What is all this suffering accomplishing? You know, it will accomplish your good if your good is the good of Jesus. You know, Romans 8.23 says, you know, all, all things, 8.28 says, all things are, work together for the good of those who are called by his name, called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? His purpose is to glorify Christ. If that's your purpose, then all things will work out for your good. If that isn't your purpose, then it's not going to work out for your good. God's grace needs to intervene deeply in this particular moment when we have to identify that many times when we look at the circumstances of our life and say, um, that doesn't seem to be for good for me. To have the Holy Spirit come to us in that moment and say, in a way that we could never manufacture, say, but is it good for Christ? Because I care about that more. That's what we need. We need a miracle. That's a hard place to get to, but that's what we need. Third point of application. Your biography belongs to God. Your biography belongs to God. You are an instrument just as surely as Paul was. You have a mission just as surely as Paul did. And you have always been, in all things, you have always been being prepared to carry out that mission. Friends, you have a tribe. You have parents. They might be great parents, which means they're only okay, right? Like, because, you know, all of us parents are not that great, even the great ones. You might have terrible parents. Those parents are from God. You were born in the family you were born in because... Jesus has a plan to use that starting point in some way. Maybe you can't see it, and I probably certainly can't see it. We need that scanning technology, right? Uh, but God has caused you to be born into the particular family you were born into for his purposes. You have a Tarsus. You have a starting point. You have a town. All of us, in some respects, have um, an indentation placed upon us from the places we were raised especially when we were young schools full of mush. All of these places are not accidental. Each one of you is unique in some respect by the place and the time in which you were raised. And this is why it's so good in our community groups, for instance, to mix our generations up a little bit. Because in some respects, you know, Tarsus is, um, I would say it this way, it's a town and a time. You know, you, you're, you were influenced not only by where you were raised, but when you were raised. And God is going to use all of that, too, to bring glory to his name. You have a trade. You have a career. You have a way that, that, that God has provided for you to put food on the table. Friends, this is the, the real trick of Monday through Friday, is to keep reminding yourself, 
that that trade is a gear that God has cut out and has given you as a means of glorifying him and not to look at that time you spend working as a waste of time, as, as a waste of like, did I really ever get anything done? You know, this was the constant question that Angela asked herself when she was staying at home with the kids all day, you know, did I really ever get anything done? And now she's working in an office and it's the same deal. <laughs> did I really get anything done? It's like, probably not. Like you probably just moved the pile of rocks like one inch further. Like, like that's not the way to look at it. You know, that's not the way to get your identity. That's not the way to establish your value. The way to establish your value is Monday through Friday when you're working to say, God, you chose my town, you chose my tribe, and you chose my trade. This is what I'm doing right now. Let me glorify you with my job. Uh, you have a teacher. What's so interesting as we begin meeting with newer members at Providence is to hear about their past experiences in the church and maybe outside the church and just all of the different people that have taught each one of you. It's really quite amazing if you think about it. The group of people we have in this room have a bunch of different teachers. And some of them have been good and some of them have been bad. But you have been educated in various ways. And this is one of those beautiful elements of working together as a, as a people is that all of this kind of forms together. And, and you have transgressions, I think. Maybe you have some transgressions, I don't know. You know, um, I was thinking this week about how you know you're preaching the gospel rightly when you have to interrupt your preaching of the gospel and say this. Does this mean that we should sin more so that grace might abound more? What I mean by that? Well, that's what, that's what Paul had to do when he was explaining the gospel in Romans. And why, why did he have to interrupt himself? Because, because he was preaching a gospel that said that God is so over and above your sin that he can turn even that into fodder for his glory by showing you grace and mercy. And so he has to interrupt because he knows the logical direction of preaching that message is to, is to say, well, then, like, is sin even bad? Maybe sin's good. And Paul says, you know, that's an absurd conclusion, but an anticipated one. Uh, and I want you to say, I want you to hear this this morning. I'm not, when I, when, I, when I speak in this moment about your transgressions, I'm not encouraging you to go out and add more. That would be an absurd conclusion, and Paul would really get on your case about that. But what I do want you to understand is, is like, God isn't handcuffed by your sin. It's another part of your story. And all of the gears that he is working out are worked out in a way that will proclaim the glory of Jesus. And, and, and sometimes, and boy, I've sure been here, sometimes we get so frustrated with the ongoing indwelling sin. And here's why. Because I am living for the sake of my name. And I want, to be, I want to be a good guy. I don't want to be a sinner. I, I, don't, I don't want to have transgressions. And I get frustrated not so much because I'm in love with Jesus, but because I'm in love with the idea of me being a better me. So there's a way that even when you're struggling with sin, to take a moment, take a step back, obviously be repentant, don't morph this message of grace into antinomianism in which there is no right and wrong anymore. But there is a way to step back and say, even now, when I have been freshly reminded of my wickedness, 
I have been freshly reminded of your faithfulness, of your mercy, and your grace. And God used the transgressions of Saul as much or more than he used all these other ingredients that I've been talking about. This was the central message of Saul's uh, recitation of the gospel. I was the chief of sinners. I was a persecutor of the church. These transgressions were a key part of his ability to bring glory to Jesus' name. So I want you to see that in all of these ways, who, who you were born to, where and when you were born, what you do for work, who you've been taught by, and even your sin, even your transgressions, all of these things are gears in a machine that God is creating, an instrument that God is creating. And I like that Antikythera mechanism because it was essentially a device that told others what time it is. And that's what you are. You are an instrument to tell other people what time it is. And what time is it? It's time to worship Jesus Christ. In Acts 17, Paul, this is almost one of those, I was born for this kind of moments for Paul. He steps into the Areopagus in Athens and he speaks to Gentile philosophers in their own sort of vernacular. And he says two things to them in Acts 17. Firstly, he preaches a message of God's divine providence over all circumstances. The same thing I'm talking about this morning. And so I want you to hear that because this is the inspired version of what I've been trying to say. Verse 26, Acts 17, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So one of the things Paul tells these Gentile philosophers is God is sovereign over every circumstance, over every place. He isn't limited in his rule or reign over a particular people or particular place. He is everywhere and he chose for every one of you to be born to whom you were born to, where, and so forth. But then, after establishing that, what does he do? He tells them what time it is. (laughs) Because he's an instrument built to do that thing. In verse 30, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If you want a life that's cohesive, that makes sense, that is able to compensate the ups and the downs and able to to, uh, integrate all of that into a meaningful life, you need to see yourself as an instrument. It's the only way life actually works. It's the only sort of operating system that is actually able to process this world as it comes at you. You need to stop seeing yourself as ultimate and start seeing yourself as an instrument meant to serve something bigger than you. That's the only way this world makes sense. It's the only way the reality that you're experiencing actually makes sense, to see yourself as an instrument. And then you have to ask, well, who am, who, whose instrument am I, and what do I exist to do? And the answer to that is I am 
I am the one who created, I'm, I belong to the one who created me. And when we say I, we mean every little tiny gear of our personality, our genetics, our past, our sins, our everything. I, am, I belong to the person who made me. And that person who made you is Jesus Christ. And then we need to ask, well, what do I exist to do as an instrument made by Jesus Christ? Well, you exist to do what everything else exists to do. You exist to proclaim the glory of Jesus. Specifically, you exist like a clock exists to tell the world that the times of ignorance have passed and that now God expects everyone of every nation, every context, every circumstance, God expects all of them everywhere to worship Jesus and that the day is coming in which everyone will be judged by Jesus and the evidence of that day coming is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let me pray. Gracious God, we praise your name for being sovereign over our past, present, and future. And we praise your name, God, that you give us this this idea of instrumentality that allows us, God, to see the world as it really is. It is, I don't think, disrespectful in any respect. Um, You're compared to worse in the scriptures to imagine you as a masterful drummer sitting in front of thousands of individual instruments, playing them all skillfully and in perfect time. Thank you, God, for your sovereign power that you reveal to us in your scriptures. Lord, may we not give that beautiful revelation up for the sake of an easy explanation of hard things. May we hold tight to that revelation as it is, Lord, in so many respects, the key that makes sense of everything. But Lord, would you help us to see that that we are in many respects more complicated than a mere musical instrument or more complicated than even uh, a, a, a computer. We are full of details and weirdness and nuances and, and strengths and weaknesses and, and stories. And that in all of these things, dear God, you have been sovereignly standing over all of it. And you have been sovereignly preparing us to become an instrument that proclaims your glory. And Lord, I just want to say one last thing in my prayer to you, and that is that God, give us, give, help us to fear you. It isn't, it isn't obvious or should not be assumed that every person in this room has been saved, that every person in this room is a redeemed instrument. Lord, you say in your word that you prepared the world, everything for a purpose, and even the wicked for the day of judgment. And you say to Pharaoh that, that In his rebellion and stubbornness and hard-heartedness, he was a prepared, chosen instrument to demonstrate the goodness and truth and power of God. So God, I just pray that if anybody here is not yours, that you would redeem them from being that sort of Pharaoh-type instrument, that you would make them a Paul-type instrument. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.